welcome back everybody to another episode of the health mastery show today i have on with me a guest who i've been looking to get on for a very long time i know i say that quite frequently but i was really looking forward to this this person i read their content all of the time their scientific papers in my research in trying to answer questions and that is professor luke van loon so luke is a professor of physiology and exercise at the department of human biology at Maastricht university medical center he has an international research standing in the area of skeletal muscle metabolism and his current research lab, which is called M3, focuses on skeletal muscle adaptive response to exercise and the impact of nutritional and pharmacological interventions to modulate muscle metabolism in health and disease. So his main areas of interest research in his laboratory are muscle metabolism, sports nutrition, clinical nutrition, adaptation to endurance and resistance exercise, and the use of disease, of physical activity and nutritional interventions with aging and chronic health conditions. So that's a lot, but Luke has been around for a while and he's published a ton of papers. So in this episode, we get into talking about the effects of plant proteins and are they effective. We also talk about how he translates nutrition science into uh, science or practical application for aging and elderly populations and we also touch a little bit on some supplements and carbohydrate supplementation and a few other things as well but a really interesting conversation and i hope you enjoy it but without further ado let's get into the episode with professor luke van loon luke thanks so much for coming on the podcast today you're welcome um happy to do it yeah and i know it's been a while trying to get get you on um but I think this is one of the, the, the more exciting ones that I've been looking forward to. Um, as we mentioned just before we came on air, I've read tons of your work um, and from your lab as well, uh, having studied sports nutrition. And I think you're probably one of the most prolific sports nutrition researchers um, worldwide, I would say. I think uh, most people will know your name. So for those perhaps who don't, it would be great to get a bit of an intro into yourself, your background, how you got to where you are today, if you can keep that into a couple of minutes. I know it's probably, uh, we could probably talk the whole time about your accomplishments. Yeah, it's not so shocking. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a professor at Maastricht University, um, just a researcher. Uh, we have a research group of around 30 people where we study the interaction between nutrition and physical activity, ranging from sports nutrition in the athletes all the way to uh, nutritional care of the intensive care unit patients. Mm. So that's it. Yeah, well, I I think that was a bit humble, but yeah. So, so what what's something that you're kind of really excited to be working on at the moment? Is there anything novel or interesting that kind of keeps you awake at night that you're thinking about? Oh, there's a lot of things that keep me awake at night, but uh, most of the work we're doing uh, recently is a lot of looking at more sustainable protein sources because that is a societal uh, interesting topic that we get a lot of questions about. So there's also a lot of interest from from industry into that topic and mm. uh, so we started to look a lot on plant-based proteins uh, and we've taken a few steps further on already looking at insect uh, insect derived proteins so that that's 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 fun i mean it's it's novel and we'll see where that brings us in the future mm. yeah it's a really, really interesting topic that um the i guess there's two there's two sides from that is one is looking at perhaps the utility from say a muscle building or muscle maintenance and muscle protein synthesis effect and then the other side of it is say the more lifestyle things like palatability getting people to actually eat that stuff and then also the sustainability is is plant protein and 
uh, like insect protein, is that more sustainable if that was rolled out across the world? Because I know we often hear people talking about sustainability, but when you actually scale something to a worldwide population, to do the, do these things actually become more sustainable and economic, etc.? Is that something you're looking? Yeah, to? I'm afraid. I'm afraid you have to ask uh, somebody who works on sustainability yeah. because. I only ask questions on the topics of sustainability. And when we're talking about sustainability and, and, and we're looking into plant-based proteins and I'm talking about plant-based protein isolates and concentrates, they are actually being processed to get them out of the uh, rest stream of vegetables or anything like that. But of course, then the whole sustainability issue is, is questionable because if you put a lot of effort in, in getting that protein out of the plants, how sustainable is that protein that you end up with? Mm. That also depends, of course, in the total uh, recycling. I mean, if it's a rest stream and you can make something beneficial out of a, out of a rest stream, out of basically garbage, then it's a then it's a benefit. But if you're actually throwing away a lot of uh, plant-based food sources in order to g extract the protein, then of course we're talking about a different situation. So it's always very difficult to understand what sustainability is. Think about these. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, the wind energy. Um, in the sustainability energy, do you also take into account the building of the of the of the, of, the, of the fans, the disposable of the of the concrete and all of that stuff? So, it's topics that I know a little bit about, but I'm certainly everything but an expert in mm. that. Yeah, so these are questions that I just wonder myself when you think about. Um, it's a little bit off topic, but when people are talking about shop local and you know don't buy from large multinational companies that ship across the world, but but often the emissions or the carbon footprint from the transport element of these foods are not actually the what the main uh, outputs are from they're, they're from the production whether it's meat production it's it's or the feeding of the cattle or the production of the foods rather than the actual transportation but uh so like you said it's uh it's a topic for another day and probably another person on another podcast, but um, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's an interesting topic. And uh, I had, a, had somebody just really uh, violently responding in a conference saying that uh, that, that, that person uh, is a, veg a vegan and therefore more sustainable. And I said, I'm not sure whether uh, vegan and sustainability are necessarily the same thing, mm. because I think it's more sustainable that if you have uh, cattle and they die of a normal normal death. I mean, uh, do you bury them or do you eat them? Mm. I mean, eating them would be actually more sustainable. Um, and I would take it one step further. If you're actually uh, eating your, I mean, eating a dead animal is going to be more sustainable than burying it. Mm. So, so necessarily being a vegan is not necessarily uh, more sustainable. So it's it's the topic of sustainability is much more much more difficult. Yeah. So when it comes to looking at the, the plant proteins, because obviously that question is something that is at the forefront of everybody's mind now. Um, what, what is it that you guys look at in your lab in terms of, is it the muscle protein synthetic response and how, how that can be your replacement for, for athletes or for, for humans? Yeah, so one of the questions is, of course, protein quality. And we do a lot of studies in, in looking at protein quality. And in the past, we've, of course, used the intrinsically labeled protein method in order to assess differences in digestion and absorption, uptake, release, but also incorporation into muscle and muscle protein synthesis, following, for example, whey protein versus uh, casein. Mm. But uh, now we get questions on plant-based proteins, whether they have the same anabolic properties. And so we, uh, we, but also other groups have started to do that kind of work. There's not a lot of work being done in that area, really, on looking on muscle protein synthesis in vivo in humans. 
But we know that, for example, uh, wheat protein and soy protein do not seem to have the same anabolic properties as uh, milk or the milk proteins. Um, so it seems that they have a lesser anabolic potential, and that is, of course, explainable due to the fact that, uh, gen in general, plant-based proteins have uh, less essential amino acids, that particularly uh, lower in leucine content, which is an important uh, stimulatory factor in the amino from all the amino acids stimulating most protein synthesis. And a lot of the plant-based proteins are deficient in specific amino acids. Mm. So if you take one specific amino acid or one specific plant-based protein and you compare it with an animal-based protein, in general, you might find a lower anabolic response. Now, we started testing different proteins, but also different protein blends, so you can lift off, uh, lift up, uh, compensate for any specific deficiencies because you combine different plant-based sources. And then uh, the differences, I mean, can be present or they cannot be present, but it depends also on the situation. You can compensate for lesser quality by ingesting more protein. Again, it's not rocket science. If you have some deficiencies or less leucine, but you just ingest more of the same protein, you can compensate for that. Yeah. We've shown that with wheat protein, you can, can achieve the same anabolic response than an animal-derived protein, but you simply have to ingest nearly twice as much of it. Yeah. And that is also a relationship with, uh, I mean, a lot of people are asking questions based on the documentary on the game changers. And then they're saying like, oh, you can actually gain a lot of muscle. Uh, and that's novel when you you eat only plant-based proteins. No, of course. If you're a 120 kilogram or 100 kilogram NFL uh, player and you consume a huge amount of food because you actually have a high energy expenditure and you're training all day, you, all, all, you naturally already consume a huge amount of protein. I mean, even a 60-kilogram uh, Tour de France athlete will actually consume about 25 to 30 megajoules of energy per day. If he or she only consumes about 10 energy percent protein, they will still consume more than 3 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day. So that's an overwhelming amount, much more than what is needed. So if you have a lesser quality protein in that diet, it's not going to matter. It's going to be fine. It, with, and that's exactly what you see in the documentary. Yeah. It's nothing magic about it. Would that be protein uh, from, say, like, I would say indirect protein sources, so from the likes of breads and pastas and things like that and oatmeal? Is that where the protein is kind of adding up? Yes, uh, that, that that's where the protein comes mm. from. And then, of course, the other side is, is, uh, is there a difference between plant-based proteins when they're still in their whole foods matrix? Mm or whether they ingest it as uh, protein isolates, like a pre-protein that you can actually use in your, your post-workout post milkshake. There's a difference, because the digestibility of a lot of plant-based proteins is less when they are actually consumed in a whole foods matrix. Mm. So in general, you could actually speculate that if you consume a lot of plant-based protein sources, that you have to eat more in order to get the same bioavailability of the protein in those whole food sources. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you already mentioned that perhaps the, the the anabolic effect of uh wheat protein or, or plant based proteins is not as 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 effective per dose as that of uh milk based or animal based proteins because of the the leucine content but you can compensate by essentially eating more i assume that's when you get to the, like the the 2 or 3 grams of leucine right probably around that amount where you cap it off and i think I think looking at some of the research, it was like you need 40 grams of, of wheat compared to maybe 20 of whey. Right? But, but when you're looking at those studies, is that plant-based protein, is that from a protein powder where it's actually being isolated from the plants? And then 
if that was eaten, like you said, in the food matrix as, I don't know, eight slices of brown bread or something like that, does that mean that you probably actually need to eat even more protein because of these fiber and the, the outer shells of the, the, the grains, et cetera? I mean, this, this, is a, this is a great question, and this is something that, that science is struggling with because uh, what we like to do is we would like to answer a specific question. And for that, we need to take out all of the uh, factors that we don't know anything about. So when we look at the anabolic response to protein feeding, we love to use a single protein, for example, whey or casein, and then don't add any carbohydrates or other stuff, but simply use that protein and see what is happening. But except for bodybuilders, we don't consume, or a lot of athletes, we don't consume protein powders. Mm. We consume food. And in foods, we actually have a lot of other factors. We have other macronutrients. We generally have a combination of different proteins. Then we have, of all the products that you consume in a single meal, they're being processed. We now know that heating protein, um, um, uh, storage of protein, also has effects on the uh, bioavailability and therefore also the biofunctionality of the proteins. So if you consume a full meal, all of these things come together. And most of the research is not being done with meals. Why? Because then if we find differences, we don't know where the difference comes from. And it gives us from a scientific perspective, doesn't give us much answers. Mm. But to be honest, I think we slowly have to move forward to whole foods based research and then all the way to uh, mixed meals in order to see what a meal really does. But it's tricky because we need to figure out which factors are actually affecting the anabolic response to feeding when we change something in the meal. For example, if you skip out the potatoes or you skip out the meal or you heat it uh, or you use a microwave uh, versus a normal, a normal uh, prepared meal, if you then compare, you don't know what caused a potential difference that comes out of the study. So that is the difficulty. But the translation from protein powders to whole, uh, whole meals, that's tricky. Mm. And how do you see the future of, say, plant protein in the diet? Because as you know, unless somebody is a informed athlete or perhaps like a bodybuilder, something that's kind of very conscious of the protein intake, people, a lot of people, they're not even conscious that, uh, like, I don't know, a glass of milk is a good protein source or like chicken breast or something is, is like a protein source. That's quite common in a lot of people. Then if you have these different protein sources that are from plants that need to be combined in order to maximize the, the anabolism, uh, that even becomes even more complex. Or is it the fact that you, you, you shouldn't let uh, great be the hindrance of good, you know, shouldn't let great stop being good in, in the sense that we will eat meals that are, are not maximizing anabolism, quote unquote, but are still good, if that makes sense. Is that the way you kind of I mean see it? Yeah, Mike, I can I can bring it back to what I said just before we started this post podcast. I mean, I started uh, with my PhD in mainly on carbohydrate metabolism and interaction with fat metabolism, um, and then basically most of the applied research was related to how can you maximize performance and glycogen synthesis with uh, ingesting enough uh, carbohydrates and what kind of carbohydrates and the amount and the timing. After that, we realized that also the intermuscular triglycerides are an important substrate source. So we started doing studies in my postdoc on how the intramuscular triglycerides are substrate source during and following exercise and how they can be stored optimally and how this, uh, this uh, functional storage leads to diabetes and, and, and is associated with obesity. And then we actually move towards uh, protein metabolism. 
So funny enough, I mean, even in my career, first carbohydrates, then proteins or fats, and now proteins. And suddenly we have three macronutrients meaning foods. Mm. So we need all three components, but we generally study only one yeah. in each specific study. But of course, with foods, all of these three macronutrients come together, plus a whole range of other nutritional elements. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. I remember when I first because I compete in bodybuilding and when I first started learning my nutrition, it was from forums, uh, maybe 15 years ago and it was following bodybuilders, you know, like uh, professional bodybuilders and they would often not combine certain, uh, group, food groups. They wouldn't combine fat and carbs together because, uh, the insulins released from the, the carbohydrates should actually then uh, be the storage hormone for the fat. So if you if you mix them together, then you it, it's crazy how, how when people get a little bit of knowledge, they then conflate things into into uh, you know these hypotheses where you shouldn't combine certain foods. And I, yeah, we try to simplify things, and then I mean we only work with the knowledge that we have. And of course, if if you get stuff like that, I mean uh, it's always difficult for us as well. I mean you learn that insulin is an anabolic hormone. Mm. But that doesn't mean you use it, that more is better. And that's, that's of course, in, in general with athletes and with people not in the topic, they will simply say, okay, this is stimulatory, so we get more and it's more stimulatory. It doesn't work. Like mm. that. Yeah. Uh, it was a topic that, that we did some studies in, in the past as well to see whether weight gainers with protein plus carbohydrate has a greater anabolic response than simply only the protein. Because I mean, you've seen this. I mean, in the in the in the eighties, I mean, the weight gainers were being sold more than the protein supplements, and actually, the product itself per kilogram is cheaper because carbohydrates are generally cheaper than protein. But they were being sold as a higher price. Mm. So, uh, in short, it was just a, a good marketing scam. But if you give the protein and you add small amounts of larger amounts of, of carbohydrates, it doesn't affect the anabolic response to feeding. Of course, carbohydrates can be relevant if you want to restore your glycogen. But for your protein synthetic response after a workout, the carbohydrates are not needed when you give an ample amount of protein. So the greater insulin uh, is not going to have a greater effect. And there's, there's very nice laboratory-based studies where they show that you only need about a five to 15 microunits per mil uh, of insulin to facilitate a maximal muscle protein synthetic response. So in other words, after many studies by different groups, we basically figured out is that insulin is permissive, but not necessarily stimulatory. So you need a certain amount of insulin to allow a maximum stimulation of muscle protein synthesis, but more is not necessarily better. Mm. I, I've seen, well, I I've seen, not yeah, there, there's been work, I think it's from your lab and also from Stu Phillips lab, looking at that, the addition of, of carbs to, I'm not sure if you, if you guys did amino acids or, or protein, but it didn't have any Im impact above the actual protein dose. Yes, studies from McMaster, yeah. but also from Gal Galveston, and there's some very nice work from from Paul Greenhalf in, in, in England on, on that's more the mechanistic point of view on insulin clamps and the effect it has on protein synthesis. But they all point the same way. And, and what do you mean by um, the permissive effect of insulin? You, you mentioned permissive. What, what, is, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you, you, need the, you need the insulin to, uh, to, to allow the anabolic stimulation to take place and to allow the amino acids to be taken up in the muscle. So insulin is necessary, but above a certain, certain level, more is not better. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And then when it comes to uh, glycogen resynthesis, you talked a little bit about that. Um, how important are is glycogen or having carbohydrates post-workout 
in order to maximize glycogen resynthesis in, say, somebody who doesn't compete in multi-day events. So I, I've, I've read some research that when you when total carbohydrate intake for the day is, is matched, that glycogen at a 24-hour period, so your muscle glycogen will be will be the same, the same levels, even if there was a gap, I think it was of two hours post-workout. But then one caveat that kind of leaves a burning question for me is that the the subjects who actually waited two hours, they were having, I think it was the same amount of feedings, but they're having something like 200 grams of carbohydrates every couple of hours, but they were like uh, high GI carbohydrates, so some sort of sugars, which doesn't, as we kind of talked about a bit earlier, doesn't represent real world. People don't eat uh, 200 grams of jelly babies every you know, three hours for 24 hours. That's just not real world. So is there actual utility in a real world setting where people are having mixed meals and say they're training once a, once a day? Is there utility in having uh, carbohydrates, fast carbohydrates or, or sugars, say post-workout in that, say half an hour period or close to your workout? Based on the work that has been done, and Luis Burke has done some really nice work on 24-hour glycogen resynthesis. I mean, most of the work shows that if you consume enough food in energy balance with a normal diet, then your glycogen resynthesis is optimized or is restored back to normal within 24 hours. So um, in general, with a normal workout, your glycogen content should not be limiting your performance during your workout session. So for normal workout sessions, you don't have to maximize glycogen resynthesis. So I don't see much need in carbohydrate ingestion immediately after exercise, unless you have to optimize performance, for example, the next day, and you have completely depleted your glycogen. Think of a, a cyclist in the Tour de France, for example. But otherwise, uh, I mean, if you're going to play soccer on Saturday and you want to have a maximum performance the week later on Saturday, don't, don't, don't think too much about carbohydrates mm. because it's it's not going to limit and certainly not for the for the for the for the recreational athletes because you also have to consider the fact that uh, even though uh, the high the high performance athletes will actually be trained to use less glycogen their glycogen use is still high because they have such a high performance capacity and if you're just a, a mediocre athlete I mean your glycogen use is not going to be that that heavy because if you're maximum workload capacity is half of a, of a performance a high performance athlete and also your carbohydrates uh, use is not going to be huge mm. yeah that, that's that's a topic that um a lot of people i guess they get confused on what about say like professional athletes who who do train every day it, would that even make a difference because i know you you'll see with uh, say soccer athletes like professionals they will be like having post workout shakes and things like these and rugby players and basketball players uh, is it even does it even have any like if somebody's trying to get that last one two percent does it make any difference if they're, if they're not recreational athletes no i think if you're a professional athlete you want to optimize performance so you want to maintain or regain uh, the, the glycogen levels that you have before the next training session especially if the training sessions last more than two hours uh, and are intense uh, but uh, with a high performance athlete your overall energy intake is so high that in order to maintain energy balance, you will already consume a, a huge amount of carbohydrates on a daily basis. So that will cover your, your glycogen resynthesis. I mean, most of most of the nutrients that we need, fortunately, in most people, most of the nutrients that we need is being consumed by food, not by supplements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, supplements is basically a lazy way 
of getting the nutrients you want to maximize performance or reconditioning. So think about uh, a sports drink during, during, during cycling is simply easier to ingest uh, when compared to a, a plate of pasta because that doesn't, that doesn't work handy when you're sitting on a bike. Um, secondly, if you're going to the gym and you, you, you have a two-hour train ride to get back home, you can't have your normal meal after your training session. So in that case, uh, a protein shake or a protein bar is going to help. So it's just a practical alternative way to get the nutrients you want. But it doesn't, I mean, it's not at the expense of, of food. It shouldn't be at the expense of healthy foods. Mm, yeah, um, that, that's, a, that's I guess a really important point. And I think a, a lot of people kind of have to pay their due diligence and spend tons of money on supplements and realize that they don't actually have much of an impact. Um, when it comes to say like the importance of whole foods, um, I think I think what you're saying is important, but I think you have to make it more positive. You can have a huge impact with nutrition, mm. but that that works mainly through the diet because the supplements are only a very small part of the total nutrients you consume on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's why food is actually can have a much greater impact because it is the main source of our nutrients. Mm. And what are your, what are your thoughts say from a psychological perspective? Let's say. Let's say we, you talked a little bit about weight gainers um, at the start or before we start recording. The, f from a perspective of somebody who's trying to eat more, let's say to either increase energy intake for a sporting performance or simply to be in a positive energy balance to gain muscle or weight, it, it, it would be easier technically for somebody to, say, consume a whey protein, maltodextrin blend, your typical off-the-shelf weight gainer versus making a, an extra pasta dish, especially if they're somebody who say has a very high metabolism and struggles to eat a lot of food what are your thoughts on in supplements in, in those scenarios and i'm not talking about supplements in like uh you know tribulus or something these you know bunk supplements no, no, no. So, so so i always make the make the difference between um sports nutrition with sports nutrition a lot of people already think of sp uh, supplements but if i actually talk about sports nutrition then i talk about a diet that is optimized for performance and reconditioning and that can include sports nutrition supplements in order to make it easier to consume the required nutrients in a situation where it's more practical. It's like think about having a board of pasta while you're cycling. That doesn't mm. work, so you have a sports drink. And then there's, of course, the, uh, the supplements that you buy on the Internet that have all these uh, crazy effects and supposedly or sometimes they even have uh, um, substances in there that are actually forbidden. Um, I call those uh, nutraceuticals yeah. because it's somewhere between nutrition and pharmaceuticals like creatine. I mean, if you want to ingest 20 grams of creatine with normal foods, uh, you probably have to slaughter half a cow on a daily basis. Um, so with 20 grams of powder, that's easier, but that's no longer nutrition because that's not a normal amount that you get in nutrition. So I call those nutraceuticals. Mm. But if you're talking about sports nutrition supplements, so in the, in the, in the line of normal foods, then you always have to consider the fact that we only know a very small amount of uh, things about nutrition. I mean, if I talk about flavonoids or carotenoids or whatever, I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't even uh, talk about these, these nutritional uh, elements. And so all of these other factors are in nutrition and they are generally in healthy nutrition. In the sports uh, nutrition supplements, we've taken all of that stuff out 
So there's a lot of stuff that might be of really a benefit that we don't know it exists. We don't even have a name for that. Mm. So I would only take the supplements because, I mean, it's the name already says it. To supplement something when you can't get your food in, or your nutrients in through normal nutrition. Yeah. And so just uh, get your head out of your ass and just cook a nice uh, protein-rich snack and don't resort always to uh, to uh, consuming uh, also prepared foods like, like protein drinks or protein bars. Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting topic that I would love to see more research on in the future is, is the effects of, of these non-essential plant properties and their effect on body yes. composition and health. What is interesting, I mean, now you're saying it's interesting to do research on stuff that you don't know it exists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so, so there's probably a lot of stuff in plants that we don't even know exist and have synergistic effects. Um, like remember, remember look at look at for example the the literature or the the, the literature not literature the, the internet uh, it will it will tell you about the existence of bioactive peptides and i see it all the time there's bioactive peptides i i love to believe that there's bioactive pipe the peptides are small peptides that have a biological function but to what extent are they actually taken up in the gut uh, because most of the protein is, of course, converted to free amino acids and then taken up. But there are transporters for small peptides. Mm. So are there small peptides that have a biological function? Is that just a marketing stunt or do they really exist? Are they being made in the body or are they really taken up from your product? Mm. And then do they have a function? I mean, that is just another factor. I mean, are there bioactive peptides and does, is it real? I mean, this is stuff that... but then. Consider the fact that you have a bioactive peptide of somewhere between five and maybe 15 amino acids. There's a lot of different bioactive peptides that you, or peptides that you can make. So which one are you going to look for? Mm. Yeah. That, is, that is tricky. Yeah. Like when I was looking at some of the, the literature on, say, how to maximize natural testosterone, there's some stuff on plant sterols or other, like I said, non-essential stuff, flavonoids, uh, carotenoids, as you mentioned, other these kind of things that give plants their color and their shape and et cetera. And that isn't clear if it, if, if they have say long-term impacts or even acute impacts, but it, it's because at the moment, all we kind of seem to think is, or at least what the, the, the research that we have at the moment is that when you kind of match your calories and your macronutrient profiles in the short term, at least it doesn't really seem to make a huge difference as long, of course, as long as you're not deficient or you have ad adequate intake of micronutrients, your vitamins and your minerals, but we don't really look at these, these plant properties. Um, but then, as you mentioned, sometimes people can take advantage of that and say they have this new bioactive peptide or and then they, they sell this uh, unique thing um what are your thoughts on say uh, i don't know if you ever heard of a, a guy called david david sinclair i think he's a researcher from from harvard he had a i think it's called reversitrol is it the 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 extract from grapes yeah. and and they they looked at um i haven't looked too much into the research but i do believe that at some point that was like it was cited as this magical anti-aging property um or supplement but then perhaps it actually doesn't have the impacts they they necessarily thought it would um is are there kind of do you think there's say these these emerging substances from plants that perhaps may have that are look being looked at at the moment that perhaps may have these effects that were almost pharmaceutical like down the line 
Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 I mean, the, these, these things pop up all the time, and generally they pop up after in vitro analysis and screening for anabolic uh, potential or anything like that. And you have, for example, uh, compounds out of the skin of apples. Mm. Uh, you have the azolic acid, for example, the resveratrol that we know from wine and from, from grapes. And, and all of these compounds seem to do a lot of stuff. But then if you want to consume them to a level that they can, could do something in the human body, then we're talking about huge amounts that you can't really ingest in the form of grapes or in the form of apple, apple, apple skins. So the question is, do they really have an effect if you consume them in such high levels? And are there possibly, potentially also adverse effects? To be honest, in most cases, uh, results end up being disappointing in a practical sense. Um, that is not to say that the research is not interesting because the research learns us a lot how the, uh, the, the cells work and how the, the human uh, system works. But I don't think there are magical bullets. And the best bullet we have is consistent uh, nutrition and training and keep that up and try to just uh, live a little bit more healthy. And for example, eating more plant-based plant-based foods is gonna help you. Not, not necessarily from what is in the plants, but also from the fact that it's just much more difficult to consume the same amount of energy from a diet that has more plants because it has much more fiber. It has much more water. So it helps people to reduce energy intake. And of course, with most people, I'm generally not talking about the athletes, uh, simply eating less is probably the best health advice that you can give to most of the world's population, at least the Western population. Mm, yeah, I think if you if you want to get lean or get leaner, uh, you almost have to eat fruits and vegetables, not because of their their unique properties themselves, but the combination of the the water content, the fiber content, the, the food volume. It just makes it so easy that it's almost impossible to have a high fiber, uh, low calorie, high calorie or low calorie dense diet without eating lots of fruits and vegetables. Just but then to be honest, I mean, uh, I know this, you know this, but it's always difficult because I mean, uh, vegetables, you generally have to prepare, mm. you have to keep fresh and you don't have the time or you think you don't have the time and you end up not eating enough veggies. I mean, that is just, just a fact. Mm. And that is difficult for people, but I mean, we know, I mean, in so many cases, we know what we need to do. Um, but yeah, doing it is, 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 yeah. Is, the, is the most difficult step, of course. And then we have the challenge of perhaps um, socially deprived areas where the food is not available and they don't have the cooking skills and all of these things, which, which is not something that I'm necessarily an expert on and is something for public policy and uh, again, probably for another podcast, but it's it's not quite as easy as because so sometimes, and this is definitely the way that I talk, taught a few years ago, is that everybody is just personal responsibility. Everybody just needs to eat less food, and it's just, it's not perhaps quite as simple as that. Maybe for people who are who have a bit more, uh, maybe in a bit more in affluent areas and things like that, and can afford to cook and eat, and yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember one of the, the radio shows, a popular radio show in the Netherlands, and they called me in the morning and they, they, the, the, the most important question that they had was, what should I eat to lose weight? And, and they expected a whole range of stuff. And I said less. That's the only thing I said, less. And then it was all quiet. And then I thought, like, yeah, that actually makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that's just humans. I mean, it's the same thing. Like uh, I'm 105 kilograms. I love uh, I love cycling. Um, my bike is probably 8.9 kilograms. 
uh, I probably paid uh, a few hundred bucks more for uh, a bike that was less than 10, 10 kilograms, while I could actually save a lot of money by just losing yeah. 10 kilograms. I've, so I've heard that one before, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite funny, yeah. Uh, the human mind boggles sometimes. Um, yeah. But when we talk about aging, uh, healthy aging, because we, we did say we discussed this a little bit for the for the next few minutes, was um, what what can people learn general populations learn from sports nutrition in terms of healthy aging and then i guess the question will be what is healthy aging is is it biomarkers we're looking for is it um subjective feeling is it muscle mass is it is it lifespan or yeah very good question i mean i think that we can learn a lot from the sports nutrition in healthcare but also prevention of uh, of of illness because i mean that's the main main thing i'm doing at the moment is basically explain how simple the sports nutrition research has been and why and the, asking the question why we're not applying this in healthcare more um we know that when you become i mean you are what you eat i mean we use the intrinsically labeled protein procedures so we infuse cows with labeled amino acids it's for the cows to actually incorporate those labeled amino acids in the milk we extract the milk protein from the milk and use that in clinical studies in order to really assess digestion, absorption, how much of the protein becomes available as amino acids and how does it stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So we can follow uh, the trajectory of protein throughout the entire body all the way to conversion into your own muscle. So basically showing you are what you eat. Now with exercise, we can actually see that you are, if you are active before you eat, you are more of what you just ate. So you make more efficient use of your protein. And then you can actually see how, how you can modulate this further by changing protein source or the amount or the timing or the type of exercise, etc. But of course, in, uh, in athletes, it can always be compensated by the fact that athletes consume a huge amount of food. So quality, as I just said, with the plant-based proteins is not a major issue if you consume a wealth of protein. But if you actually are a compromised patient or you are a person not moving a lot, your food intake, your energy requirements are much lower. So your food intake is lower. So quality becomes more important. Mm -hmm. Quality becomes more important when your food intake is lower. So when people go to the hospital for a new hip or a new knee, we see that their, up their, their protein intake is, I mean, uh, organizations in the world suggest that you have to be somewhere between 1.2 to 2 uh, grams per kilogram body mass per day, depending on who you believe. The reality is that they get about 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day through their diet that is being provided next to their bed. But they, in, 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 in reality, they only consume 0.5. And this is in a good hospital here in Maastricht, uh, where, I mean, this is a high-profile uh, hospital. They only consume 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram body mass per day in, an, in, in, in a patient that is trying to recover, has to rebuild muscle, has to rebuild collagen, connective tissue, etc., so they are severely underfed. So there's, there's severe protein malnutrition. Now, if we then also pick up the rehabilitation after the surgery, I mean, you can just uh, add up. I mean, these people should actually consume more protein. The protein should be uh, combined with the training, just like an athlete, and it's not, it's not happening. And of course, I think being able to walk again and do all your stuff is sometimes more important than having a gold medal in a, a recreational competition. 
So why are we not using everything we know in sports nutrition in healthcare? So I, I think the topic of clinical sports nutrition is, is very essential. And we, start, we have to start using the knowledge we have in order to optimize health and performance. And that is basically what healthy aging is about, to overcome short periods of muscle loss due to sickness or surgery or hospitalization. Because generally we leave the hospital with less muscle, less strength, and then we don't regain. And then all the way up to the next session, you actually, uh, you, you already lost even more muscle. You don't regain it. And then with the next corona episode, flu, or your next surgery, you lose more. And then in, within 10 years, you can't live independently anymore, and you have to be institutionalized. And you spend the last 20 or 10 years of your life institutionalized. And that is something that you want to prevent, but you need to start working on that. Yeah, I, I remember, like, when I've been in the hospital before, for, for like, uh, overnight, you know, you, you get feeding of, like, toast uh, with butter, and uh probably not, not enough calories and obviously if you're if you're immobilized you're not activating any uh any kind of muscle protein synthesis from exercise so i think in the in the ideal hospital there would be those uh you know electromagnetic stimulation things that would <laughs> contract and and you would get a protein every every couple of hours but i guess uh funding is probably a, a huge uh, yeah, but that's, 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 that's I, I, I agree. I mean, we've used the electrical stimulation to show that there's no tissue atrophy when you're immobilized. And we even used it in coma patients to show that there's uh, hardly any muscle loss during comatose conditions when you give electrical stimulation twice a day. But it's not what we need if you're not in a coma and your leg is not completely immobilized. You can get out of bed three or four or five times a day or preferably do not spend any time in bed throughout the day. And so it's much more simple than that. I mean, any, any, any lecture anywhere in the world, I've always asked people, where's the TV in the hospital room? And the answer, I don't know how they do it. Every culture, every country, whatever language they speak, it's always the same. The TV is on, on top of the bed. Mm. It makes sense. People are being fed in the bed. We've done studies to show that also chewing, but also sitting upright has an effect on digestion and absorption. So don't feed people in bed if it's not necessary. Get them out of bed, feed them on a table, make them, make them sit upright, chew well. I mean, it sounds really like your mom is talking to you, but those factors are important in stimulating muscle protein synthesis and therefore preventing muscle loss. And yeah. so just, just try to make a, a hospital a more normal living situation for those patients that are capable of, of, of achieving that. And, and that will actually prevent much of the muscle loss that we're having. And, and generally, it's, it's, I think the amount of exercise that is required to not lose huge amounts is very little. Mm, yeah, I think kind of a, a tangential topic, but um, when, you, when a lot of people start working from home because of the, the, the pandemic response, people were paying a lot of money for these like extravagant comfy chairs because they were getting like hip pain or lower back pain or neck pain. But the problem is actually not that you want to be really comfortable because if you want to be really comfortable, you, you lie in bed on your back with a laptop and you'll be really comfy, but you're going to be very, very sore because you're not using those muscles. Um, the same when people get those braces to help them like stand up straight. It's like, well, actually you're immobilizing that muscle the same way as you're wearing a cast on your arm. So it's not actually helping. It's actually probably making it worse. And as soon as you take that off, you're going to feel, feel terrible. 
it can help as a, as a, as a step up, but in the long term, it's not going to help. I mean, it's the same mm -hmm. with diets. I mean, why do all these diets work for the last, first few, few weeks? Because you disrupt the metabolism from the homeostatic uh, setting that you've actually achieved yourself. And then the body doesn't know how to react or it takes time to react to it. And then it gets back to normal. So you can use those, 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 those early interventions in order to change uh, some of your, your, your body weight. But it's not, it's not, I mean, it's not something that will work always because our body is much more uh, smart than we think. I mean, we are much more flexible. Uh, if we change our diet to much less carbohydrates or much more fat or much less protein, the body will adapt. The body will adapt to diets because if that wasn't the case, the dinosaurs would be walking around and not humans. Mm, yeah, uh, that's a, another really, really interesting uh, topic to me is the, the metabolic flexibility and f doing uh, different intensities of exercise and manipulating diets to kind of manipulate oxidation and the kind of where people get confused in terms of fat loss and energy production. But I guess we don't have time and perhaps another time that would be something we could chat about. But where can people find more information about you and your work? Uh, we have a website, the, the M3 Research Group, is www.m3-research.nl.org, I don't even know. I'll uh, put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, that—that's information of the people that work in our group and all the theses that they that they uh, published. You can actually download them, but also all there's a link to all the papers that we've published, and a short description of the techniques that we use in the facilities that we use. And of course, you can also address me if you want. Um, yeah, and for the rest, just um, depending on what you want to know, use PubMed. Don't believe all the crap on uh, on YouTube and uh, stuff like that, but try to get, I mean, if you're interested in the science, uh, stick to the scientific publications and try to understand those. If you don't know anything about it, you, you don't have a background in science, sometimes it doesn't help reading papers because you can't, most people can't discriminate a good paper from a bad paper or a different technique from the other one. Uh, for that, it needs some expertise. And, and so uh, don't only read the headlines because sometimes the headlines are not necessarily what the paper finds. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great uh, little point to, to leave us on. And I really appreciate you coming on, Luke. Happy to do it. Lots of topics to discuss and happy to come back anytime you want me to.